Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. Thank you for joining us today. We are on episode 20. Hard to believe we're here already at 20. Time flies. We're continuing a discussion today that we've begun a while back. We started talking about salvation one, what Jesus has done to accomplish our salvation through his perfect life and innocent death. And then we moved on to a discussion about salvation distributed. How does God bring us that completed salvation Today, that discussion started with a talk about the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And last time we started talking about the sacraments, we talked about baptism the last couple episodes, and we will be talking about the Lord's Supper in the next couple episodes as well. But today we're going to talk about the office of the keys and confession, which are two terms that I suppose are are maybe a little bit mysterious or uh, not so familiar to some of our listeners. So, we should probably define what it is that we're actually going to be talking about today. So we're going to start with uh, the commands that Jesus gives to his church at the end of Mark and Matthew's Gospels. At the end of Mark's Gospel, Jesus said, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So before his ascension, he commands the apostles and through them also the church to proclaim the good news of redemption through him to all of creation because God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth and to be saved. And it's for this reason that the gospel is to be preached to all creation. Similarly, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, we hear the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You could say maybe in this way I am with you always, even to the end of the age, through the proclamation of the gospel and administration of the sacraments. So Jesus told his church to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments. Now, what special authority does Jesus include with that command? And we find this in John's gospel, as well as Matthew's gospel, in John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And again, Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Christ included the authority to declare sins forgiven or not forgiven. And it's called the office of the keys because it opens heaven by forgiving sins or it closes heaven by retaining sins. Now that sounds troubling to people who are maybe hearing this for the first time because uh, very often people will come into our services, which uh, always begin with a confession of sins and then hearing these words of absolution, that in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And uh, they say, well, who do you think you are that you can forgive sins? Nobody can forgive sins but God. And there's truth to that statement, but God has also given this authority to his church on earth. Now, 
uh, that doesn't mean that the church gets to decide willy-nilly who, do, who gets to be forgiven and who doesn't, as in, well, I just don't feel like forgiving you today, therefore I'm not going to do it. Or, uh, you know, this person deserves forgiveness or something like that, and therefore we're going to forgive them. No, it doesn't work that way. In standing in the stead of Christ, a pastor is always to never speak more than what Jesus has said outside of what Jesus had said or uh, less than what Jesus has said. Uh, so it's not as though they get to make the rules up as they go along. Uh, but certainly this is the authority that Christ has given to his church. And when we hear it proclaimed to us uh, through God's representatives in the church, we are to believe it as if it were coming from the mouth of Christ himself. So, we, you know, we might naturally ask, well, to whom has Christ given this office of the keys, as we're calling it? And again, Matthew 16, uh, verse 19, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, in John 20, specifically where we read that Jesus said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, You, uh, believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so this authority is given to all believers, and we'll talk about how that's exercised here in, a, in a, just a minute. But certainly when the church exercises this, it's, if, it's as if God himself in heaven is, is, is exercising it. And that becomes apparent when we look at, you know, say Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus said, uh, if the unrepentant sinner refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So basically when the church declares that the doors of heaven are shut to an impenitent sinner, it's in fact shut. And that sounds, again, like it's putting too much power or authority into the hands of the church. And certainly there are those in history who maybe have abused this authority or have not exercised it according to Christ's uh, institution or his, his desire. But we'll get to that in just a minute as well. Nonetheless, this is an authority that Christ has given to his church. It's very clear there in numerous references. The question is, how then do Christians publicly use this office of the keys? How do we make use of this thing that Jesus has given to his church to bind or, or retain sins? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, St. Paul would say, this is how one should regard us, referencing himself as one of the apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We talked about this a little bit last time in regard to baptism, but here we would also say in terms of the office of the keys, though the office of the keys belongs to the church as a whole, when the church gets together, it's not a free-for-all. You don't have everybody uh, running around forgiving everyone. They have somebody that they've called into their midst. We call them pastors who are to exercise this authority on their behalf and in Christ's stead. Uh, they are the stewards of the mysteries of God. In Acts chapter 20, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
So we'd say that it's not by human arrangement that God has instituted an office in the church, uh, that if a man fills that office, office, it's his job to preach the gospel and to administer the sacraments, to use the office of the keys on behalf of the congregation, that it's actually the Holy Spirit who has placed him into that office, and uh, this is why we call it a divine call, that God calls through his people and places them into an office that he himself has instituted for this purpose. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, St. Paul says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. So, uh, you know, what this says and what it doesn't say, let's, let's talk about that first here. Throughout history, we'll see that women were never ordained to the pastoral ministry. Though women have certainly served majorly important roles in the life and the history of the church, this was not an office that was given to them. And it's by God's design. It's not by human arrangement. For whatever reason, God said it's not for them to fill. And this has nothing to do with uh, women being lesser valued or lesser loved or lesser saved or something to that effect. Nor does it have anything to do with ability. I'm sure that a woman can speak very well, can, could probably give a great sermon, but it's simply not given to them to do. This is by God's design. And it's not sexist. It's not because Paul hated women, as some would suggest. This is simply by God's design. Uh, the pastor, as he stands, he stands in the stead of Christ, the bridegroom before the bride of Christ, the church. And so, for whatever reason, God, in his uh, wisdom, this is by his design how he's arranged things. There's order in the church. It's not a free-for-all. And just in case you think it's sort of an anomaly, uh, Paul also says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So uh, he, he goes all the way back to creation and the fall into sin to, to point out that there is order that God himself has established, and it's not our right or our prerogative to overturn that order. No matter how outdated we might think it is or no, no matter how much it doesn't agree with our politically correct sentiments of our culture. So according to God's will, congregations are to call qualified men, and we see the qualifications for them listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, to be pastors who in the name of Christ and on behalf of the congregation publicly preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. Now, congregations certainly will at times also create what we would call helping offices to assist in the work of the ministry, to assist the pastor in that work. It would include things like day school teachers or Sunday school teachers or, uh, you know, we've got various boards and committees that, that help in, in carrying out the functions of the church. You know, there's certainly many, many areas for women to serve and, and in fact become crucial to the life of the congregation in so many ways. They become the backbone in a lot of ways. But however, the Bible does forbid women to serve as pastors. Now, I, I recognize that maybe to some of our listeners that comes as a shock especially when uh, much of modern Christianity has all gone uh, full in on the ordination of women to the to ministry. And of course, they celebrate it as a great thing. But remember that up until, uh, you know, just a little over 100 years ago, 
uh, or maybe even less, all denominations basically only had men pastors. And it wasn't because they were sexist or they devalued women by any means. So things always work better when we follow God's design, his order for our lives. And uh, this would be another instance of that. Now, who are to be told that their sins are to be forgiven and who should be told that their sins are not forgiven? Going back to our discussion of the office of the keys. As I mentioned earlier, this is not an office that the church exercises willy-nilly based on their own whims or thoughts. This person deserves forgiveness or this person doesn't. They are only to proclaim what is scripturally already true. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, Acts 3 says. So we see the condition that is placed on the forgiveness of sins. It's that we're repentant. We're truly sorry for our sins. We've turned from our sin. We've turned to God looking for that forgiveness. Certainly, those are the people that are to be forgiven. Now, nobody can read hearts. Somebody can say, yes, I'm sorry. I'm truly repentant. And, uh, you know, we might say, well, I kind of doubt it. I don't think you're being sincere enough. It's too bad. We don't have the right. We can't read hearts. Now, if somebody says that and they're living in manifest open sin, then it's obvious that they're not really, uh, they don't really mean it. They're not truly repentant. But uh, we take people at their word. Nobody has the ability to read hearts. Only God can do that. And therefore, as Psalm 51 would say, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. So the sins of penitent sinners that is, of sinners who feel sorry for their sins and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, are to be forgiven. But those who are not sorry for their sins should have forgiveness withheld from them as long as they do not repent. So somebody says, yeah, I know this is wrong. I'm going to do it anyways. I don't really care. I'm not sorry for it. Uh, We don't say, well, don't worry about it. Jesus forgives you, so go on your merry way. To, to do so would really be to spurn the forgiveness that Christ has won with his life. Uh, we certainly don't want to do that. Now, this is, I should have said, this is not to say that somehow the word of forgiveness proclaimed by the pastor is more efficacious than the gospel proclaimed by any Christian. If somebody comes to you and confesses their sin, you may say to them that uh, in Christ, God forgives that sin. And when you say it, it's just as efficacious as when a pastor says it. So it's not as though the pastor somehow has magical powers or that the word is only effective when spoken through him. But we recognize that in the church, there's this order and that they are indeed stewards of the mysteries of God, that God has given, given them this task to exercise on behalf of the congregation, on behalf of all the Christians assembled there. So that's where uh, people would turn to. Now, uh, on the other side of it, people who are living in unrepentant sin, how should the church deal with those who are, let's say, not repentant or not sorry for their sins? And there we have some uh, very specific scripture passages which guide us as well. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So when one encounters a person who is living in unrepentant sin, there is a process. We don't just jump to, hey, by the way, heaven is closed to you, you're excommunicated from the church. We would certainly want to confront them in a loving way, not in a judgmental or legalistic manner, but obviously our concern is for the welfare of their soul. And hopefully that comes across. That being said, sinners never like to be confronted in their sin, and generally they become defensive and they make excuses for their sin, and they can try to justify it. So this is not always a, a, a pretty process. It's not always a pleasant process. Nevertheless, if we truly care about somebody, we don't say, hey, that's just your choice. You can continue to live that way, and we support you. Such would not be love, right? If we truly love somebody, and we see them in a self-destructive behavior, something that's going to eternally harm them, the loving thing would be to try to correct them or to bring them from that. So if we saw our children driving down a fork in the road that we knew was going to lead them off a cliff, we wouldn't say, oh, that's wonderful. We support you. That's your decision. That's how you've chosen to live your life. No, we would say, uh, turn back. You're going to die. And that would be the loving thing to do, of course. Second Corinthians chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 6, this punishment by the majority is enough. So here we're talking about when you bring it to the church, and let's say the church confronts somebody and they, they say, yeah, you know, I confess. I, I, I've done wrong. I, I have the desire to amend my sinful life. I, I seek the forgiveness of God. Then the church should, uh, without reservation, restore them, forgive them. It says, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We don't say, well... Let this sit on your conscience for a few weeks to see how it feels, and then maybe we'll think about it. Uh, no, we want to uh, rush to forgive them, to bring them the comfort of the gospel. And of course, it's always for the sake of the gospel that we would confront somebody, right? We want to proclaim the gospel. We want them to hear that comfort and have that uh, peace of mind, that, uh, that free conscience that says, my sins are forgiven in Christ. So, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, St. Paul says. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So when uh, a sinner repents and turns from their, their sinful ways and, and seeks repentance, the church forgives gladly and does it quickly. They don't wait. They don't say, oh, there's a bunch of conditions that you have to meet first. They want to make sure that that person has the comfort of the gospel right away. And even when we talk about church discipline, we're going to talk about excommunication. It's a topic uh, that um, people like to talk about, but it's not a pleasant thing to have to, to deal with in reality. Obviously, nobody wants to see anyone excommunicated from the church. Uh, but even this should not be done in a legalistic manner or in an unloving, unloving and condescending manner. It should always be evident to all that the purpose for this, it's kind of like the last drastic measure that we would take, is to bring about somebody back to repentance. And you're kind of telling them as a last-ditch effort, look, what you're doing is so serious that the doors of heaven have been closed to you. So in James chapter 5, it says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we, we, we want to steer him back to the cross. We want to steer him back to Christ for forgiveness, for comfort, for strength to pick up the pieces and start anew. In many ways, this is the life of repentance that we as Christians live daily. So this whole process that we started talking about in Matthew 18, uh, you know, we should admonish our brother or sister privately first. This would be the, the proper step. Unless, of course, they're living in a public sin, and then we, you know, we can certainly address it publicly. But we want to minimize the damage to somebody's reputation. We don't want to just humiliate somebody because we can. Obviously, the motivation is always love. So we should admonish our brother or sister privately first. And if that's not successful, we should go with one or two others. And if he's still not sorry for the sin then they should be dealt with publicly by the congregation. Again, that's the last step. And this might take a long time. Uh, You know, this is not something that happens overnight. It might be a a whole process that takes months or weeks or whatever. But uh, excommunication is always the last-ditch effort to bring a sinner to repentance. It says, If you will not listen to the congregation either by refusing to appear or by otherwise remaining impenitent, he would be declared an unbeliever, one who is outside of the Holy Christian Church. The doors of heaven are locked to them. And the pastor on behalf of the congregation would carry out excluding that person from the rights and privileges of a Christian, except from the right to hear the word of God. So they wouldn't be barred from entering the church and attending services, but uh, they would no longer be welcome to commune. They wouldn't be given a Christian burial and so on. And of course, we call this excommunication, which is... uh, a terrible word. It's kind of a, an ugly word in some ways. It's not one that we ever want to have to deal with. But such action of the congregation and pastor is as valid and certain in heaven also as if Christ our Lord acted and dealt with that person himself. And that's what Jesus said. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. And so we we would never jump to this step. We would never jump to this uh, just uh, on a whim. This is something that must be prayerfully considered, uh, patiently dealt with, and of course, always in a loving manner. Now, should the excommunicated person later confess their sin and ask for forgiveness, the congregation absolutely should, through the pastor, forgive their sin and receive them again as a brother or sister, with open arms, no questions asked, uh, no strings attached. Again, excommunication is an act of Christian love, at least it should be, to make the sinners see the greatness of their sin and to bring them to repentance. Uh, This is always to be the purpose of excommunication. Now, along with this idea of the office of the keys, historically in the church, there's been the practice of what we call confession and absolution. Maybe you've heard of private confession And uh, usually people only associate that with the Roman Catholic Church, or maybe the the Orthodox churches uh, practice it as well. And uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, you'll often hear about three parts to confession. There's confession, there's the absolving of sins, you know, the forgiving of sins, but then there's uh, works of satisfaction or works of penitence. Uh, So in the Lutheran Church, we would say, Private confession serves a purpose, and it certainly is valuable and to be utilized. And the purpose is this. As a sinner who is burdened by guilt, by shame of some sin 
in your past or that you're dealing with, God has given this as a gift to the church so that you may hear the gospel not just applied in a general sense, as in God forgives the sins of sinners, but uh, hear it specifically in your case, God forgives your sins. As you confess it, uh, you know, the pastor is there for the purpose of absolution so that you can have that comfort, that reassurance of conscience that God indeed does forgive you. That's the whole purpose of confession. It's not so that the pastor can learn, you know, the dirty secrets of his parishioners or something to that effect. But I will say that in recent years, uh, this is a practice that you'll find has fallen out of use in the Lutheran church. Uh, when it was put into the general confession and absolution that we find in our, in our service, uh, I think a lot of people would say, well, I don't have to go to the the pastor privately to confess my sins. I can just confess my sins to God and he'll forgive me. And I can do that even in the general confession in the church service. That's true. And we certainly wouldn't argue that. However, again, people are missing out on the comfort of hearing those words specifically applied to you individually. And that's the whole purpose of confession and absolution. Let's face it, people are have broken lives. They're carrying around a lot of baggage, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame for things in their past. And this is a, a, a wonderful comforting tool, a strengthening tool that God has given to his church. But this idea of confessing our sins to one another is not really foreign to the scriptures. It's certainly there. Uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we think about Psalm 32. David would say, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So we confess our sins before God, even when we do it before a pastor. It's not as though confessing it to God, it doesn't count, but I have to go through this past. No. But on the other hand, God has given you uh, his called representative there for that purpose as well, so that you might have this comfort. We, we see that when uh, you know David himself sinned with Bathsheba, uh, he falls into the sin of adultery, he falls into the sin of murder, he tries to cover it up with all sorts of lies and deceitful schemes. And uh, there seems to be a year uh, in David's life where he's kind of silent. We don't hear about a lot. This is during uh, Bathsheba's pregnancy. But then uh, God sends the prophet Nathan to David for this purpose. And Nathan tells David this sort of extended parable and uh, David doesn't quite get it that it's really about him. And he hears this story. And uh, finally, David said to Nathan, uh, you know, after hearing this story and, and Nathan saying, you know, you, you're the, you're the one I'm describing here. You're the man. David would confess, I've sinned against the Lord. He confesses it to Nathan the prophet. And right, right away, Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. So there we hear the words of absolution, the forgiving of the sins. Uh, that David needed so desperately for that comfort, for that reassurance, for that clear conscience. Uh, he confessed his sin to Nathan, and Nathan, on behalf of God, forgave that sin. Again, we got to remember that when Jesus sends out uh, preachers in his name and in his stead, he even tells them in Luke chapter 10, the one who hears you hears me. So when we hear these words of absolution spoken by a pastor, and you know, there's no doubt that the pastor is a sinful man. So it's not as though he's got some sort of superpowers. Uh, I'm sure anybody, uh, anyone who knows their pastor personally realizes that he's not perfect. 
that he's got his own shortcomings and weaknesses as well. Um, and nevertheless, in that role, in the office that he fills, we are to hear uh, those words of forgiveness, the gospel proclamation from his mouth, as if we're hearing it from Jesus himself. The one who hears you hears me, Jesus would tell his preachers. Uh, and of course, this is something that we, we, we even pray about, right? In, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So it's something that we desire, that we pray for, something that God has seen fit to arrange for uh, the application of this forgiveness through his called uh, preachers and through Christians, through mutual consolation of the brethren, we would say. Uh, you know, When somebody else proclaims the gospel to you or somebody comes to you privately and confesses some sin, you, know, you can certainly... Uh, share the gospel good news that in Christ God has forgiven that sin. And again, that's a, a real impartation. It's a real giving of that forgiveness. It's not just a word about forgiveness. It actually imparts the forgiveness that Jesus has won. It's a performative word. Now, in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, it says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. As we desire forgiveness from God as we seek it out, we also want to make sure that we're not holding, withholding forgiveness from other people. So it's kind of hypocritical if we come to God and say, you know, God, I really need your forgiveness. But on the other hand, we say, but I'm not willing to forgive that person over there who who did me wrong. You know, it would be uh, sort of undercutting us. It'd be cutting ourselves off at the knees. So we want to examine our hearts and make sure that uh, as God has in Christ first loved us and forgiven us, uh, that we would also share that love and forgiveness with those around us as well, that we're not harboring any ill will or uh, lack of forgiveness. And of course, uh, this proclamation of the gospel is for the comfort, for our comfort, for our consolation. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. We hear Jesus speak in Matthew chapter 9. So in the Lutheran Church, we would say confession consists of two parts, namely the confession, or what we would call the acknowledgement of sin, and the absolution, the second part would be absolution, or really the pronouncement of forgiveness by the pastor or confessor. Again, you, it doesn't have to be a pastor. That's, that's the, uh, normally the, the means that God has given to his church for the orderly carrying out of this. But, um, you know, like I said, it's not like the word of forgiveness is not efficacious as it's spoken by another Christian as well. And we all need this, right, in our daily relationships, whether it's husband and wife, uh, parents and children, co-workers, whatever it might be. However, when absolution is proclaimed, we are to regard it as if Jesus himself were standing there speaking it, and we are to truly believe that our sins are indeed forgiven. Now, this is not a, a license to go out and to continue and live in that, that sin. Uh, when we are repentant, we, we mean we, we'd have the desire also to leave that life of sin and to henceforth amend our, our sinful lives and to dedicate them to God knowing that we won't do that perfectly, obviously. That's, again, that's not an excuse, but uh, we shouldn't be thinking, well, I'm going to go get forgiven so that I can go out and you know, have a good weekend and sin myself silly, and then I'll just go back and, and be forgiven again. Uh, to do that is to really spurn the grace of God, to trample it underfoot. That's, not, that's the kind of the opposite of faith. We wouldn't want to do that. Now, to God we confess ourselves to be guilty of all sin, even the ones that we don't know about, just as we do in the Lord's Prayer, but we also make a general confession of sin at the beginning of our worship ser service. We hear the absolution spoken by the pastor. Now, we don't always even uh, 
we don't even know all of our sins. You know, this is one of the things that the Bible re- reveals about it. So it's not like we can enumerate every single sin, uh, you know, that we've done, because there's countless ones that we don't even, we're not even aware that we do it. As sinful, fallen human beings, I would say, you know, unfortunately, as children of Adam, we are professional sinners. We're so good at it that we don't even realize we're doing it. You know, the little white lies that we tell without even, without even a second thought or, or whatever it might be, the hurtful uh, words or, uh, you know, the vindictive heart or whatever it might be, these things should not be. But as we examine our lives in light of God's law and his will, as it's revealed in the scriptures, we become conscious of sin, right? It's through the knowledge, uh, through the law that we become uh, conscious of our sin. And as we do that, uh, we confess that sin to God. It's impossible for us to remember every single sin, so that's not a condition upon it. But uh, we, we make a general confession of the sin that we're aware of and also those that we're not aware of, that we sin in, in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, by the things we do, sins of commission, and by the things that we should do that we don't do, the sins of omission. When we sin against our uh, neighbor, we should confess our sin to them. And the absolution that is spoken to us by the neighbor is, is then spoken to us, that word of forgiveness, and that's true as from God himself as well. We may also confess our sins privately to our pastor. I, I mentioned this earlier. Uh, we call this private confession absolution. It's not something that is particularly used a lot in Lutheran circles anymore, unfortunately. But again, this is a wonderful tool, a comforting tool given by God to the church for our consolation, for our comfort, for our benefit. Uh, especially if we're particularly troubled or burdened. And the pastor is there to pronounce absolution. He's not going to put a bunch of conditions on it and say, well, only if you do this or this or whatever. Uh, he's there to to apply that word of the gospel specifically to you. Now, in that regard, I should mention that when a person becomes a pastor, when a man becomes a pastor, he makes a solemn vow at his ordination to God not to reveal anything that is confided to him in confession, not even to other pastors. We call this, you know, the confessional seal. And breaking that promise would really, in essence, make him unfit to be a pastor and also would disqualify him from serving in that office any longer. So he can't tell other pastors, he can't tell his friends, he can't tell his wife or his children. Uh, what is spoken in private is to remain between you and him and God. I mean, and, and that's as far as it goes. So uh, that should be the case in every case. Now, I'm sure people have heard horror stories, and uh, that's terrible. But certainly you can have confidence that as you go to your pastor, he is taken a pledge, a, a seal before God, a vow before God, that he would not reveal anything that's spoken to him privately in confession. Now, uh, there's probably a lot more that could be said But again, we're talking about the application of the salvation that Jesus has won for sinners. How does it come to us? How does God make it ours? And today we we hear that through confession absolution, the office of the keys. God brings that forgiveness to us uh, through the absolution of sins as we hear it proclaimed to us by our pastors and applied to us in the words of absolution. And as we hear that, we are to hear it as if from Christ himself and what a comfort and a joy that is. We don't have to wonder, does God truly love me? Does God forgive me? Where am I to, to find this forgiveness? Because God directs us to that word of reconciliation that he has bestowed upon his church, that he's entrusted his church with. That God was in Christ reconciling uh, sinners unto himself. 
uh, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is, in Christ. So on behalf of Under the Oaks, this is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. We hope that you'll join us next time. 